People who's read Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code and wondered if it's true, this is the program for you. The Spirit of Things presents The Essential Guide to the Da Vinci Code here on ABC Radio National. Here's the sort of thing that might have set you wondering. The early church needed to convince the world that the mortal prophet Jesus was a divine being. Therefore, any gospels that described earthly aspects of Jesus' life had to be omitted from the Bible. Unfortunately for the early editors, one particularly troubling earthly theme kept recurring in the gospels, Mary Magdalene. More specifically, her marriage to Jesus Christ. And Da Vinci was certainly aware of that fact. The Last Supper practically shouts at the viewer that Jesus and Magdalene were a pair. Since a lot of what Dan Brown asserts as fact in the Da Vinci Code rewrites the history of early Christianity, we hear from three scholars who specialize in that field. Later, we'll look at the feminist and New Age appeal of the book with religion scholar Carol Cusack. But first, to Macquarie University's Chris Forbes, Alan Dern, and Malcolm Choate, all from the Ancient History Department and the Society for the Study of Early Christianity. Chris Forbes, Malcolm Choate, Alan Dern, welcome to The Spirit of Things. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, it's pretty unusual to call together scholars of early Christianity to discuss a popular novel. When do you think this would have been done before? With um, Hugh Seanfield's Passover plot? That caused quite a stir. Or Donovan Joyce brought out uh, the Jesus Scroll, or Bajent and Lee, Holy Blood and Holy Grail, Messianic Legacy, and the other three or four volumes that followed, perhaps. Well, I'm sure there are many radio stations, particularly in the States, where uh, you know, the latest Harry Potter book would bring together experts to uh, decry it. <laughs> but indeed, we've just been through this phase, haven't we, with the Passion of the Christ and then the Last Temptation of the Christ before us. And this isn't the first time, in the, uh, even in recent time, that we've been gathered discussing early Christianity in a popular medium. Mm. I think the thing is that the early Christian story actually is out there in the public domain. Mm. And it is going to be told, retold, reinterpreted, artistically reinterpreted in all kinds of ways. And people are interested, and, and the colossal success of this book is a great reflection of that. Well, Holy Blood, Holy Grail plays a bit of a role, doesn't it? A kind of a secret cryptic role in Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. It's in his bibliography, and so it should be, because most of his ideas come from it. Now, that pot boiler was really about the true origins of Christianity, so-called, and that, that always gets a huge audience, doesn't it? It does, but the difference is that Bajent and these books claim to be absolutely serious history. Dan Brown's in this interesting situation where he claims to have written a novel and claims that it's based on good history. Yes, in fact, it begins on page one with an astounding claim that all descriptions of architecture, secret rituals, uh, what else? Documents. One of the most uh, extraordinary crimes. They're accurate. Mm. Well, I guess it's time for us to have a look at how accurate they really are. Chris Forbes, let's start with your reaction to Dan Brown's account of Jesus, beginning with his allegedly enormous impact during his lifetime. Well, to set it in context in the novel, almost bang in the middle of the novel, the two leading characters, Robert Langdon and Sophie Nouveau, meet up with 
Sir Lee Teabing, who is, we are led to believe, the historian royal. Not, I suspect, that such a position actually exists, but nonetheless, the beginning of the book didn't say, and all royal honours. Um, Lee Teabing explains the centre of the plot to them. And uh, on page 313, he says that, as the prophesied Messiah, Jesus toppled kings, inspired millions, and founded new philosophies. Now, if that means during his lifetime, it's flagrantly silly. But if it means over the next 200 years or so, then I suppose there's some point to it. He then goes on to say something that cannot refer to the next 200 years. He says, understandably, his life was recorded by thousands of followers across the land. Well, if it was, nobody else has ever heard of them. Luke chapter 1, for example, says that many have undertaken to draw up an account of what happened, but he doesn't say many hundreds, and he most certainly doesn't say many thousands. And modern historians only know of two, or possibly three, before Luke wrote. That's Mark, possibly Matthew, and also the shadowy thing called Q that probably lies behind Matthew and Luke. Q being a collection of sayings, possibly. Probably, yes. Then he goes on to say that more than 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John among them. 80? I've been doing some checking and I can find 22. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. There's four complete documents that never made it into the New Testament. There's seven fragments of documents that never made it into the New Testament. There's four that are only known in brief quotations in later Christian writers. And there's 13 where we either only know the name of the document and not a word of the document, or else the document itself is completely hypothetical. Mm. That's only 22. Indeed. Well, Malcolm Choate, you're an expert in the other Gospels, the alternate Christian writings, some of those that did not get into the New Testament. Is it plausible that there could be as many as Dan Brown hints at? Well, it's not plausible in terms of what we know. I mean, that's not a claim that anyone else, in fact, has made. Obviously, in ancient history, it's always plausible that there's just, what, 58 Gospels that we've just completely lost track of. But there's no reason why Dan Brown should know, uh, know that and not us. It's definitely plausible that there were documents that have just passed from our knowledge completely, because there are lots of documents that we know only very slightly of. Someone says, oh, you know, mentions a work, criticizes it very briefly, and then they go on. And that's almost the same as not knowing about it completely. But that scale of literary activity to produce 80 documents doesn't sound particularly plausible. What about the Dead Sea Scrolls? I think uh, Dan Brown regards them as Christian. Uh, it seems to me that's, that's really a, a long bow, isn't it? Just a bit. Seeing as, as far as the great majority of scholars are concerned, they were all written before the birth of Christ, just a bit of a problem. <laughs> I think um, Barbara Thiering wouldn't agree, though. Barbara Thiering doesn't agree with anything. <laughs> yes, well, I think she sees in the Dead Sea Scrolls John the Baptist and, uh, and Jesus. I'm yeah. reasonably confident that Dan Brown hasn't borrowed much from Barbara Thiering. Well, Malcolm Choate, you're an expert, uh, as I said, on the other writings, the Gnostic Gospels or the Gnostic writings. I is there any hint in them that Jesus had a more than friendly relationship with Mary Magdalene? There's always hints, depending on how you want to read it. There are passages where it's clear that the status of Mary has been raised by the writer of that gospel or that work for whatever reasons. 
Um, and there's passages that can be interpreted to suggest that there was some sort of sexual relationship between Jesus and Mary, but they rely really on restoration of words that aren't in the manuscript and interpretation of words that simply mean greet or to greet warmly, interpreting them as to kiss or something like that. So there's hints, but not such that a serious scholar would really consider that. The main source that Dan Brown uses to talk about the sexual relationship or the marriage uh, between Jesus and Mary Magdalene is the Gospel of Philip. And, uh, well, I remember, Malcolm, you showed us a photograph of the scroll that the Gospel of Philip comes from. And, and the, the passage that Dan Brown quotes as referring to Mary Magdalene kissing Jesus on the lips is a complete um, restoration, isn't it? It's Basically, there's only a few words that survive here and there. And from that, you get to a free translation and from that you get to people quoting it as if the Saviour loved Mary Magdalene the most and used to kiss her offering on the mouth, as though that stood in the original text, when we don't know that at all. Some people conjecture it. Well, that particular story seems to have gained a lot of currency in recent years. I mean, that, that relationship between Jesus and Mary is quite prominent in feminist literature. Mm. It's very appealing, isn't it? Um, the, the idea of reclaiming the sacred feminine, I, I can well understand why uh, somebody would want to, particularly for a feminist theologian or, or a feminist uh, scholar, to maintain some sort of connection to the tradition of Christianity, which, uh, you know, in its early period, it seems to me to be a largely um, misogynistic movement, um, but to, to try to reclaim some sort of history of an early, authentically feminist Christianity, which is then suppressed later on by the early church. I, I think that's an enormously appealing story. Well, it certainly is an attempt to recapture Jesus' humanity, which uh, Dan Brown is convinced uh, was rejected by the later church. That is, he was divinized by Constantine, I think is his claim. Chris, what about uh, Dan Brown's understanding of Constantine's role in early Christianity? It's mind-boggling, <laughs> uh, because he claims, first of all, that Jesus was understood for three centuries as simply a man, a great prophet, nothing more. Well, if you tried to convince St. John of Patmos of that and St. Ignatius of Antioch, you might be in for a fairly serious fight. Yes, the Gospel of John very clearly refers to Jesus as God or, or as divine. And there are plenty of other Im more implicit references. But by the time you're in the middle of the second century, it's simply normal for Christians to talk about Jesus as in some sense divine. But Dan Brown says, no, he was just seen as a human being and a prophet. And then along came the big bad pagan emperor Constantine, who then changed all that made him a god and imposed Christianity on the Roman Empire. Now, to quote from a movie somewhere or other, this is just bad at so many levels. Um, so what did wrong. Constantine really do? There is some dispute about what Constantine really did. Whether he was genuinely converted to Christianity, historians have argued about for a very long time. But nobody that I know of doubts that he at least claimed to convert to Christianity. Except Dan Brown, who says he was baptised on his deathbed when he was too weak to do anything about it. Forcibly baptised. Now, that's just nonsense. No ancient source even slightly suggests that. Mm. So what Constantine did, according to Dan Brown, is that he, first of all, got control of the empire, realised that the Christians were the big up-and-coming force, which they actually weren't yet, made Christianity the official religion, 
which he didn't actually do. All he did was allow it to be legal, and then held the Great Council of Nicaea, at which Dan Brown tells us he printed a new Bible, decided which books would be and which books would not be in it, and had the rest gathered up and burnt. Malcolm Cho, do you, have you ever encountered that? Constantine as the man who codified or put together the New Testament? Well, it's like so many other things, there's a story at the base of this. Constantine did, in fact, order the production of magnificent new Bibles, bound in gold and things like this. Um, and it's even thought that we still have one of those, one of our earliest full codices of the Bible might be one of those codices. But what he didn't have anything to do with was deciding the books that would be included. Indeed, that earliest copy of the Bible has some things that we don't have in these days. That the Shepherd of Hermas and even um, letters of some of the early fathers that didn't make it in. So if we're going to follow this line of argument, then um, well, you can see how someone would say, aha, but you see, there is these other things in there. But of course, it's nonsense. But I've encountered this well before the Da Vinci Code that Constantine invented Christianity. All you need to do is have one little bit of information that's true and that sounds out of the ordinary. So Constantine was baptized on his deathbed. So people say, ah, okay, that's true. That's, that's a bit strange. They must have seen something funny going on. But there wasn't. That's what everybody did. That was a normal practice. And of course, Constantine followed that. So all you need to do is get a, a true tiny little fact and then play around with that and don't tell people any of the context. Either let people decide the context for themselves or invent a context and add it to go along with it. There's also a great anachronism, I think. Um, Dan Brown often talks about the Vatican and the Vatican imposing control in the 4th century through Constantine. Now, I feel genuinely sorry for Constantine because he would love to have had the sort of power that Dan Brown ascribes to him. The way that something like the Council of Nicaea is, is portrayed in the Da Vinci Code is uh, we, we get the picture of uh, you know, the Vatican imposing control and suppressing the, the true um, Christianity that had existed before them. But, but there wasn't a true Christianity. Christianity was always divided. There were always divisive groups within it. Constantine, I think, was a consummate politician who thought that Christianity or Christians offered a way of uh, giving his reign, uh, giving his rule some sort of um, backing. But then he found that the people he wanted to support him were actually wildly disunified. In the letters and so on of Constantine, they actually do survive, but Dan Brown doesn't make any use of. Some of them have an almost hysterical tone to them. You know, please, could you stop fighting amongst yourself? You know, um, letters written to Christians. Please, uh, all right, that, that your rival faction has stolen your church. I'll build you another one. You know, it's that sort of tone. Well, it's hugely attractive, isn't it, to be able to find the one true single thread, the, the true story of Christianity. Dan Brown seems to assume that there is such a story that has no divisions. In his version, of course, it is that Jesus and Mary got together and produced children and had a royal bloodline. Mm, absolutely. To me, this is one of the, the great ironies of the book, actually. Uh, but for a book which is quite hostile to traditional or orthodox uh, stories of Christianity, reading it, I actually find it uh, quite a Christian book in the way that it reflects an idea of knowledge. I, I think uh, early on we get a reference that's right, it's when uh, Sonnier is dying in the Louvre. He must pass on his secret because he, he's thinking that there is an unbroken chain of knowledge. So we get the, the story in Dan Brown of this unbroken chain where we can look at a, a painting of Leonardo da Vinci and use that as evidence for the historical Jesus. 
this is actually quite a Christian idea that, that somehow knowledge exists in a sort of unbroken chain so that we can look at the documents and follow them back to find out you know, who the historical Jesus actually is. And, well, for me at least, I find that claim quite unbelievable, whether it's coming from Dan Brown or from a more orthodox uh, uh, Christian perspective. Can I say that uh, anyone who thinks there ever was a unified, organised early Christian movement really ought to read 1 Corinthians mm. because that makes it reasonably clear that in the mid-50s AD there was already a terrible muddle. Mm. Early Christianity was a highly fractious movement. There's mm. no question about that. And I think Alan is right. I think Constantine would love to have been in a position mm. to wield that kind of power. Mm. Well, I think that could probably be said for all major traditions. They went through a very long <coughs> period of fighting amongst themselves until something coherent actually came out mm. uh, afterwards. It's almost like a process of... Uh, natural selection, I suppose, that we have competing uh, rival ideas and, and some ideas are backed by powerful people or not, and somehow you know, other ideas are sort of suppressed and taken out of the story. Alan Dern, Malcolm Choate and Chris Forbes are all from the Ancient History Department of Macquarie University in Sydney. Written like a detective novel, Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code slowly reveals the secret at the heart of Christianity. Teabing located a huge book and pulled it toward him across the table. These are photocopies of the Nag Hammadi and Dead Sea Scrolls which I mentioned earlier, Teabing said. The earliest Christian records. Troublingly, they do not match up with the Gospels in the Bible. The Gospel of Philip is always a good place to start. Sophie read the passage. And the companion of the Saviour is Mary Magdalene. Christ loved her more than all the disciples and used to kiss her often on her mouth. The rest of the disciples were offended by it and expressed disapproval. They said to him, Why do you love her more than all of us? As any Aramaic scholar will tell you, the word companion in those days literally meant spouse. According to these unaltered Gospels, it was not Peter to whom Christ gave directions with which to establish the Christian church. It was Mary Magdalene. He intended for the future of his church to be in the hands of Mary Magdalene. From Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code. Later, I'll be joined by Carol Cusack, who will tell us about the medieval and new age dimensions of the spiritual blockbuster. You're listening to The Spirit of Things on ABC Radio National. Woke up this morning from the strangest dream. I was in the biggest army the world has ever seen. We were marching as one. On the road to the Holy Grail. And don't forget, you can go to our website to read the transcript or just listen to the program online at abc.net.au slash religion. Trying to get your hands on the Holy Grail. 
Da Vinci Code is premised on the notion that the church was all about suppressing information. It seems another sexual right got lost along the way, and I asked my guests about it, Malcolm Choate, Alan Dern, and Chris Forbes. suppressed, I guess it's no surprise um, that the sexual rite which Dan Brown imagines was at the center of the Jerusalem temple was suppressed. Where did he get that idea? I think Dan Brown sees sexual rites absolutely everywhere. Uh, I think Dan Brown has a, a generalized theory of ancient religion, that ancient religion in general and unspecified was full of sexuality for which read female spirituality because when you read him carefully all that female spirituality ever means is sex and reproduction that's it mm. which is kind of sad really i guess he's drawing though on the kind of research that has shown fertility uh, religions with goddesses being fairly prominent in antiquity and what about fertility religions with gods i mean there's nothing wrong with gods as well i think the problem is for Dan Brown that he really wants to find this sacred feminine and masculine reproduction, procreation as the central underlying theme of ancient religion. And the sad news is that it just wasn't. Uh, and the consequences, of course, are that Constantine didn't just change it either because it wasn't just there to change. If I may on the suppressing business, though, just back to the Council of Nicaea, one of the important points was only four Gospels got in and all the rest were left out, gathered up and burned. Well, there actually were some books burned at the Council of Nicaea. They were the books of the theologian Arius, but not one of them was going to end up in the New Testament anyway. Mm. Although Dan Brown imagines that Arius is the, the voice of authentic and early Christianity, which of course is you know, absolute nonsense. Arius was one of the presbyters, the priests in Alexandria in the early part of the fourth century. Not completely unusually, but a tiny bit unusually in Alexandria, under the bishops, the priests had a lot of freedom to run their churches the way that they um, saw fit. And there was a very strong tradition of theological independence and pushing the theological envelope in Alexandria, which Arius stepped straight into. And he wasn't the only person saying what he said at all, but it rapidly developed into a sort of power struggle between him and his bishop, Alexander, of Alexandria. And then it got completely out of control once international people got involved. What about the Gnostics? The idea that the true revelation was secret is something we normally associate with Gnostics. Is Dan Brown himself pushing this Gnosticism? Is he, is, is he taking a Gnostic view of Christianity? In the sense that he says that there's a secret, a secret version which is un unknown, to the New Testament, then yeah, definitely he's following because the Gnostics and groups like them had to say that there was a secret revelation because what they wanted Jesus to have said didn't appear anywhere in the New Testament. So it had to be a secret revelation that was only presented to a few of the apostles. Now, slightly oddly, these very apostles didn't tell anyone else. They only wrote it down in very secret documents and gave it to people and didn't tell anyone in their churches where they founded the major sort of seas of Christendom around the Mediterranean world. But in a way, Dan Brown is exactly reflecting that emphasis on a secret knowledge, except that I think many Gnostics would be aghast, old-time Gnostics, that is, that Dan Brown has revealed these secrets to such a wide population. Um, that's really not necessary. Only those who are marked for saving and can assimilate this sort of knowledge can really handle the full force of the truth, uh, unlike the great unwashed that have now got access to it. 
If I could just say one more thing about this sort of sexual idea, I think a large part of it, again, goes back to the medieval period. Whenever you wanted to vilify a group, you said that they had something to do with Manichaeism, a despised early Christian heresy, and you intimated that they had various sexual rituals, which were just counterhuman and barbaric. And this happened to a number of different groups. Like in, the Cathars. Like the Cathars, and even uh, the Templars were accused of carrying these out. Now, what a lot of these groups have in common is that they're all part of this great conspiracy theory of preserving this other knowledge. So that when someone like Dan Brown comes to look at it and says, OK, so these people are accused of these fertility rituals, they were preserving the true history of the Grail, so therefore these rituals must be very ancient. And then, of course, the ancient fertility rites just add on to that and make one glorious continuum. Mm. Alan Dern, do you think this book is a feminist book? Not at all. Uh, we're obviously we're being fairly negative about this book and uh, I for one would like to just uh, pause and put my hand up and say that I hate this book but mainly because I'm very jealous of it. I, I wish I'd written it. I'd be uh, sitting in a farmhouse in Provence or something. Right well, now. he sold 18 million copies. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And the top five books on the, the bestsellers list in fiction are all by Dan Brown. I mean, it's probably a sign of, you know, the deep intellectual malaise of Western culture, but it's extraordinary. Either that or a sign of the coming of the end of the world. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but sorry, too. Okay, too. well, why isn't this a feminist book since there's an obvious feminist theme going mm. through it, or at least a womanly theme? Yeah, I, I find it extraordinary reading this, that we have such an emphasis on the sacred feminine and wanting to reclaim the, the feminist history of Christianity, and yet when you look at the way that the female character is uh, depicted throughout the book, I find it offensive, and I'm a man, but uh, the, the main character, the, the female character, Sophie Naveau, is really put in the position of being the reader. So she is the rather dim person who has everything explained to her as to a small child by the men. And so we have these long passages where Robert Langdon, the symbologist, the main character, and Leigh Teabing, the you know, impossibly eccentric and ridiculously caricatured English academic, explain everything to Sophie Naveau as though to a small child and with incredible smugness. Now, I find that these passages are just so smug. So th there's an incredible contradiction there, I think, between valuing the sacred feminine and yet the female character that we have in the book is just so dim. She's so wet, isn't she? <laughs> now, Alan, I know you have a good story about one of the symbols. You mentioned that uh, Langdon, the protagonist in the book, is a symbologist. Mm. And that allows him to read all sorts of signs in everything. I wanted to pick up on that, because this links back to... See, everything's connected. This links back to the idea of the thread through history. The only way to maintain an idea like that, that there is a chain of knowledge, is to come up with some way of reading the evidence. For example, the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew Scriptures, had to be read in an allegorical way in order to make it coherent with the New Testament. In the Da Vinci Code, it's no surprise that we have the main character as a symbologist who's able to see symbols and read symbols into an incredible array of evidence from Rosslyn Abbey in Scotland to you know, a painting of Leonardo da Vinci. But when you actually start breaking that down and look at the way that he uses symbols, some of it's actually quite laughable. And the one that I particularly like is when Robert Langdon is drawing Sophie's attention, I think, in a smug and boring way to the painting of The Last Supper and talking about the V-shape that is uh, depicted in it. Then we get this description of how the, the V-shape is the original symbol for womanhood. Well, you know, according to whom, in what culture, in what time. No, but for a symbologist it doesn't matter, it's just all one. Uh, but the, the counter to that is the inverted V, 
you know, the sort of arrowhead, which Langdon explains as being the original symbol for the man, and because it's a phallus. So then we have a, a great description of how um, soldiers wear as rank chevrons on their sleeves the inverted V. The number of phalloi that you have on your, um, your arm shows how masculine you are. But you know, that's only true of the American army. Uh, in, in the American army we have the inverted V to show rank. In the British army it's just the V. Oh, but so, of course they're all pansies, right? Well, that's, well, it just goes to show that the British army are really in touch with their feminine side, doesn't it? <laughs> It's hilarious when you actually break all this stuff down, look at it closely. One wonders what high school teachers who assign this book to their students see in, in this exercise. Surely students wouldn't be able to evaluate any of this. I presume that's the case. Um, Twenty-five-ish years ago, I set passages from Eric von Daniken's Chariots of the Gods for my best students for them to tear to pieces. And they did. They did. I gave them no hints that that was the exercise. I simply said, here's an alternative view of Egyptian history. Go and research it. And they came back to me saying, how can he publish this stuff? I hope really good history students could do the same. But the trouble is the novel covers such an immensely wide span of history. Mm. I think Dan Brown had his tongue in his cheek. This book reminds me so much of the academic hoaxes that occasionally mm. pop up in scholarly journals where editors have passed completely bogus articles. And I say this because on page 224, Dan Brown has the protagonist, Robert Langdon, with his publisher, who says to him, you're a Harvard historian, for God's sake, not a pop schlockmeister looking for a quick buck. <laughs> now, I reckon... Dan Brown was describing himself. I think you might well be right, and I think probably we treat this book much too seriously. Some other evidence for that is the um, uh, Bishop Aringarosa, who is the uh, perfidious head of Opus Dei or something in, in the novel. Aringarosa apparently means red herring. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I'm sure Dan Brown is, is playing games with us and Could is I point out all the way to the bank. that such an hypothesis can only be maintained by a carefully symbolic reading of the text, <laughs> whereas the plain meaning of the text is that he's written a terrific novel which he thinks is based on the truth. Mm. And that's not as much fun as your theory, and infinitely sadder. Mm. So, Chris <laughs> Forbes, do you wish this book the Da Vinci Code had never been written? Oh, I don't mind it being written. With Alan, I'm just jealous because it's going to make far more money than I ever will. But the important thing is, people have to remember, it's a novel. It's a novel. It is not good history. It's not even based on good history. It's quite a good yarn, but that's a different thing. Malcolm, is this possibly a wake-up call for all those people working in the field of early Christianity, particularly in the Gnostic Gospels, who've been perhaps pushing at the margins of credibility with their over-enthusiastic interpretations and translations of the texts? It's certainly true that people working properly in academia who push the boundaries as much as this book does annoy me as much as this book does. There's a lot of people out there who are trying just too hard to overturn what we know about early Christian history and say, no, no, that's, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that the Gospel of Thomas actually is the verbatim words of Jesus that someone wrote down right there. See, it says at the start that Jesus said, and Thomas, he wrote them down. That must be true. But we shouldn't draw back from any of that. We only move forward by pushing edges. And without 
someone saying that, we don't have another good scholar coming along and saying, no, do I have to write another brilliant book where I set out the actual facts as we understand them in order? I think it's a good process, and I think something like this um, helps it along. People come and ask us questions. We're forced to state why we believe what we do. We're forced to formulate arguments that the public in general will understand. That's what Brown does beautifully. He puts these wild hypotheses into simple words that anyone can understand. We have to do the same, and this is a good opportunity to relearn how to do that, certainly. Well, thank you for giving me an opportunity to look at this afresh. And I think, as you say, Malcolm, it has kind of forced all of you people who teach students early Christianity to um, wrestle with the popular ideas out mm. there, which certainly are floating around. And Dan Brown has miraculously drawn all together. Mm. Thank you. Thank you very thank much. You very thank much. you. Chris Forbes is senior lecturer and Malcolm Choate is research fellow at Macquarie University's Ancient History Department. And Alan Dern, when he's not giving seminars there, teaches at the International Grammar School in Sydney. Here is Dan Brown's version of the Holy Grail. The legend of the Holy Grail is a legend about royal blood. When Grail legend speaks of the chalice that held the blood of Christ, it speaks, in fact, of Mary Magdalene, the female womb that carried Jesus' royal bloodline. The words seemed to echo across the ballroom and back before they fully registered in Sophie's mind. But how could Christ have a bloodline unless... She paused and looked at Langdon. Unless they had a child. Sophie stood transfixed. Behold, he being proclaimed, the greatest cover-up in human history. Not only was Jesus Christ married, but he was a father. My dear, Mary Magdalene was the holy vessel. She was the chalice that bore the royal bloodline of Jesus Christ. The Holy Grail is a popular theme in medieval Christian legend, chock full of symbols and relics. So I turn to Carol Cusack, who teaches medieval and Celtic Christianity at Sydney University's religion department. The whole world is a kind of theatre of correspondences, of parallels, to be read and to be interpreted. Not to see things literally and as holding one meaning, but as reflexively bouncing meanings back and forward through different sets of symbols. And I think that one of the things that the Da Vinci Code does very well is that it brings us to a position of seeing resemblances or connections between things that we might not otherwise have picked up. Well, that incredible sense that everything is related, everything's connected, is certainly a, a very popular buzzword, isn't it, at the moment in the New Age? Everything's connected. I think it's very much a New Age concept, and I think this is one of the things about the popularity of the Da Vinci Code, that it actually picks up on a number of markets, and to an extent we have to consider now trends in religion, in esoteric or religiously inspired writings, to be part of market capitalism, whether we feel this is a good thing or not. And what happens in the New Age is a secularization or a popularization, a, a consumerization of previously esoteric trends, which used to be very difficult to learn about and really only for the initiated. Now they become 
products on our shelves that we can buy books about. Exactly, and that must be a really big attraction because secret societies were always for the few and it involved initiation, rituals and so forth. Now everyone can have a peek in. Yeah, I think so. And actually, it is quite exciting and it suits a kind of democratization or a, a leveling sense that we have in our contemporary culture. Uh, the idea of initiatic religion is actually quite unpopular now, I think, because it involves dedication, deep immersion in study, and it offers transmutation, transformation, but only at a great cost. And most people nowadays don't really want to consider the great cost. They're more excited by the idea of a tea bag on which you can pour hot water, and it produces a small effect. <laughs> right, an aroma or something. Yes. Well, the Da Vinci Code obviously appeals to a lot of women, and practicing pagans, I might add, who would just love to find out that true Christianity was all about worshipping Mary Magdalene. Is this feminism or esotericism? It could be both. It's an interesting issue, the reaction in the West against the male god that has probably been happening since Elizabeth Cady Stanton and the Women's Bible in the US. Um, in around 1896 yes. or so. Yes, so over a century now we've had. It seems that feminism is one particular thing, and indeed I think now there's some question about what feminism really is. It started off pragmatically looking at situations where women and men were treated unequally, asking for things like equal pay and, and recognition of the equal value of both sexes. Then it moved into a more theoretical kind of area which talked about the male gaze and colonization of the feminine by the male and so on and so forth. And it's made its way into the new age, again, another stream which seeks in a way to replace the male god with a pre-existing female divine that the male god really only sidelined just for a little while. Now, of course, this is about tracking or trying to find the Holy Grail. And in the Da Vinci Code, the Holy Grail is, what, Mary Magdalene's womb? Effectively. <laughs> is there a precedent for that? There is. It's not perhaps a widely acknowledged precedent nowadays. The last really good book on the Holy Grail, Richard Barber's The Holy Grail, Imagination and Mediation, which was only published a year or two ago, takes a very sternly Christian reading of the legends. But it was fashionable. Certain kinds of scholars have interpreted the Grail as an inheritance from pre-Christian Celtic literature, which uses the symbol of the cauldron as a symbol of both plenty and rebirth. And that argument would be that the Grail is interpreted in a Christian framework in the 12th century by poets like Chrétien de Troyes who are absorbing Celtic folklore from Brittany and Ireland and Wales and translating it into something that is acceptable for a Christian audience as a kind of new popular entertainment. Mm. Now, of course, the story is about Jesus marrying Mary Magdalene, they're having children, and of course there's this holy line, the royal line. Now, I just wonder what this version of the Christian story has to offer anyone other than the kind of worship of a royal line. It does seem odd, doesn't it? Because it's rather conservative, in a way we might say, even reactionary 
to want Jesus to be a king in that sense and Mary Magdalene a queen and their offspring to be called Princess Sophie as she is in the book. I wonder about this myself. I think what it does for Christianity is provides an alternative view, one of those kind of split narrative films where you can follow your own adventure and move away from the main line of narrative that the official church has promoted. And it gives Jesus a more of a humanizing side, a sexuality which he is denied in official versions of Christianity. And it provides a female co-founder of Christianity. In fact, if you like, it means that Mary Magdalene can elbow Paul out of the way. That's right. Now, many women want to see that happen. <laughs> yes, it's a very popular vision, I think. Now, what about the main characters, Sophie and Robert Langdon? Are they picture-perfect archetypes? I think that they have certain archetypal qualities, yes. Sophie, of course, her name is Sophia Wisdom. She is of the bloodline of Christ. She's the princess, the royal, the treasure, the one who has the womb and who is therefore going to be carrying on the bloodline in the next generation. A good Jewish idea, I might notice, that it's your mother who passes on your inheritance. Langdon, I think, is more difficult. Actually, he's not a very masculine man in the book. He's highly cerebral and he's meant to impress by the depth of his knowledge and his wisdom but to an extent he is a little wooden a little colorless i think um it's signaled very early on that he is sophie's perfect match and that we can see them as coming together at the end of the novel but it's worth saying that it's a fairly passionless courtship and there's not a lot of sexiness in the novel despite the fact that it does talk about sex a lot no he lectures her a lot in fact now carol a lot of people have asked me and they've undoubtedly asked you whether the da vinci code is true what do you say to them i think in some senses that question is a red herring it strikes me that we in the west are prone to think of religion as something that you intellectualize about and that you present in some form of propositional manner and then you ask people to assent to it or to reject it. A lot of religion throughout the history of the world and even if we consider the contemporary world across the geography of our world doesn't work like that. People don't think about whether it's rational or can be argued or has to be intellectually assented to. A lot of religion is things that you do, traditions and folklore, customs that are passed down, things that have symbolic or mythic value rather than literal propositional truth. And so I think that the Da Vinci Code enables us to inhabit another world, another alternative dimension in which Christianity is something rather different than what it is today and I don't think it really matters whether it's true or not I do think it's a problematic thing though with historical novels because some people who follow up bits of the information know that some of it is true in 1307 the head of the Templars Jacques de Molay was burned by Philip the Fair of France with his two lieutenants swearing defiance against them on charges of heresy was this because he was in possession of the secret of the Holy Grail? <laughs> right. Well, obviously, readers of the Da Vinci Code will think so. Now, Carol, some Catholics 
regard the Da Vinci Code as a very anti-Catholic book, not just blasphemous but libelous on par with the anti-Jewish tract, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, especially as it purports to be accurate in its details, as Dan Brown says at the beginning. Do they have a point there? I think that they do, but actually... I was going to say that I think Dan Brown lets the Catholic Church off relatively lightly in the book. Some people may be surprised at me saying that. The book is a work of fiction, even though Brown does have that very provocative comment at the front. It is a work of fiction. It's not the first theological thriller or the first book to play around with this idea of a parallel history of Christianity. We have a good tradition of them, and they've often been blockbusters. The earliest one I think I read as a schoolgirl was Irving Wallace's The Word, which was published in the 1950s, and is about the discovery of another gospel that reveals that the gospels that we have are false. Of course, it's obviously based on the discovery of Nag Hammadi in the 40s. The thing, of course, is that that novel lets the church off lightly too because in the end the text is actually a fraud if you look at the da vinci code in the end despite the machinations that they've been involved in bishop Rosa is a good man and he regrets what his factotum silas did to all those people he offers monetary compensation which i think is exceptionally vulgar <laughs> and he sends silas off into the world to repent for his wicked deeds and when he's discussing with Bezu Fash at the end what's happened, it's shown that the policeman too is a good man and a believing Catholic. And perhaps they were led astray. But effectively, Langdon's and Sophie's discoveries are not going to be used to punish the church. The book ends on a note that this is really esoteric. Langdon can see the Pyramid of the Louvre, but almost everybody else who walks past it can't. Well, we'll let everyone who hasn't read the book figure that one out. Carol, thanks so much for having your insights on The Da Vinci Code. It's a great pleasure to talk to you. Thanks. Cusack is the head of the Department of Religion at the University of Sydney, and she ends our essential guide to the Da Vinci Code. I hope that cleared things up for you. But if you're wondering whether the church is ever going to fess up and make amends with the Priory of Sion, here's a future scenario. The church and the Priory have had a tacit understanding for years. That is, the church does not attack the priory, and the priory keeps the Sangrail documents hidden. However, part of the priory history has always included a plan to unveil the secret. With the arrival of a specific date in history, the Brotherhood plans to break the silence and carry out its ultimate triumph by unveiling the Sangrail documents to the world and shouting the true story of Jesus Christ from the mountaintops. Many Grail historians, Teabing added, believe that if the Priory is indeed planning to release this truth, this point in history would be a symbolically apt time. Whether the Church now has inside information that an exact date is looming, or whether they are just getting nervous on account of astrological prophecy, I don't know. Anyway, it's immaterial. Either scenario explains how the Church might be motivated to launch 
a preemptive attack against the Priory. Cheating frowned. And believe me, if the church finds the Holy Grail, they will destroy it. The documents and the relics of the Blessed Mary Magdalene as well. His eyes grew heavy. Then, my dear, with the San Grail documents gone, all evidence will be lost. The church will have won their age-old war to rewrite history. The past will be erased forever. Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, the revised standard version, though I've heard there's a luscious picture book version available now, and of course, it's soon to be a major motion picture. Today's program was produced by me and Jeff Wood, and Angus Kingston provided his technical know-how. Readings from the Da Vinci Code were by Robert Alexander. When we stumbled on the Holy Grail We were full of beans But we were dying like flies And those big black birds They were circling in the sky And you know what they say, yeah Nobody deserves to die But I I've been searching for Next week, we'll be doing Chinese exercises. Not Qigong, but a variation of it, Falun Gong. It's landed some thousands of Chinese in prison, and we hear from someone who lived to tell the tale. That's What's Wrong with Falun Gong, next week on The Spirit of Things, with me, Rachel Conn.